You're listening to Shannon Taylor Talk. Heart to heart with your fascinating online friends around the globe. Hello, today we're talking with Lou Marinoff, professor of philosophy and best-selling author of Plato, Not Prozac. And his new book is called The Middle Way, Finding Happiness in a World of Extremes. You can reach Lou at www.loumarinoff.com. Hi, Lou. Hi, Shannon. <laughs> How are you? I'm just fine, thanks. It's, How are you today? It's so exciting to talk with you. Um, I read your book, Plato, Not Prozac, uh, quite a few years ago. And um, from just an average person perspective... Uh, when I was looking for answers, that certainly gave me answers because you made philosophy so um, personal and and useful and easy to understand. And I, I it made me think, you know, a lot. And it made me think that uh, I had power. I didn't have to put power outside of myself, that there's thinkers. I can think the problem through and it would be okay. So. Yes, well, you, you just said an awful lot of things very <laughs> compactly. Let Sorry. me just, just expand on, on what you've said a little bit. <laughs> First of all, philosophy in the ancient world was a guide to the art of living. And, of course, philosophers have a great art of making simple things extraordinarily complicated, and academic philosophy does that and and actually does it very well. But in the process, of course, a lot of philosophers remove themselves from ordinary life and make themselves inaccessible, and their ideas inaccessible or even irrelevant to ordinary people, you know, in the mainstream. And I think that the art should work both ways. I can do this, too. I can publish papers that nobody understands. But it's also important for us to recapture, to recover those ancient pathways and to make what is very complicated at times actually very simple so that people can get a handle on their lives and explore this dimension. And you you use the word power, empowerment. This is exactly what philosophy can do at its best. Ideas are just as important as all the material things in life. And especially in the USA, we focus too much on the material and place not enough value on the immaterial things that can make a huge impact on us, too, as you know. Right. Um, I think a lot of us kind of feel that that philosophy is, like you said, it's it's complicated and it's over our head. So the average person, the average bear like me says, you know, I can't think it through. Um, uh, and the steps, you have a, a, a simple process of peace. Can you go into that? Um I can go into it a little bit, and, you know, I I think that it's important, you know, it's really important for us to realize that we have to make an effort always to understand what's going on with ourselves and in the world, and that things sometimes are supposed to be difficult. Sometimes things that are too easy are are just not worth the effort, and if you want to do something really important, and nothing be more important than than actually living a fulfilled life, then you have to be willing to make that effort. You know, Mount Everest is tough to climb, but I guess everyone who stood on, on the summit says it was worth it, and winning an Olympic medal is, is extremely difficult and, and complicated, but I guess it's worth the effort. So I think that people in their own lives, if they're encouraged enough, will make a bigger effort and not be daunted by, you know, complexity and difficulty, but accept that as a challenge, all right? That's my preference. Now, the peace process. Uh, well, a lot of problems, it turns out, that people experience, you know, not, not mental illnesses, but ordinary problems of living, mm-hmm. um, can, can be understood in these five stages. And the, so the first stage of the process is the P, which means identifying, you know, what kind of problem it is. And that, by the way, can be a big challenge because it's not always obvious if you go and ask doctors or lawyers, you know, about, about whatever it is, your condition or your case, you're bound to get divergent opinions. Isn't that so? Mm-hmm. So it's really important for people to consult as many experts as they think they need to or can afford to or whatever, but find out what's really bothering you. Sometimes uh, people have anxieties which could be underlying 
uh, you know, there could be underlying medical causes. Sometimes people have anxieties, which are just anxieties. Sometimes, sometimes people have angst, and, and it's very healthy to worry in, in some cases. It could be a philosophical issue, could be psychological, could be psychiatric, could be medical. But you've got to find out the onus is on you, the consumer, really to accept responsibility for finding out what's really at stake. And so that's the problem aspect. Also, you should note that some problems are time dependent. People, let's say, have to make a, you know, a career change or, or coping with some decision and struggling to make a, the right choice in life, and maybe they have to do it by next Tuesday. So that's a real problem in the sense that it's time dependent. Other kinds of issues in life are, are we, I call them processes. P also stands for process because it may be more open-ended if you're going through a divorce, and I hope not, but if you are, or you know, some kind of major transition in life, it can take a longer time to get settled. And so that's a process, but still philosophy can help there. But that's the P stage, identifying what's, you know, what the problem is. And then people, when you have some issue, there are going to be emotions, and that's the E stage. We all experience emotions, and it's very important to express them constructively. So that's really the E thing. Philosophers are not so focused on emotions. We're not going to spend that much time on emotions, but we need emotions to be expressed and, and expressed in a constructive rather than a destructive way. And the third stage is, is the A stage, which is analysis. People are very good, and I don't mean psychoanalysis. I mean analyzing you know, what the situation is and trying to mobilize your resources to figure out what's the best way to move forward. Mm -hmm. And so the analysis stage, a lot of people spend, you know, lie, lie awake at night tossing and turning trying to figure out what to do. And that's a kind of a, a, an analytic stage. And sometimes it's very helpful to have another brain on the case, an analytical brain, uh, an analytically trained brain, in this case, a critically trained brain, such as a philosopher's. And that's the analysis stage. Most people will go through that by themselves, all those three. But then sometimes they get stuck, and that's where really the philosopher can come in handy as a consultant or a counselor. So the, so the C stage is where we take a contemplative view. We try and take a step back and give you a context. C stands for a lot of things. It can be a contemplative phase. We can create space for you to contemplate and also take a step back and give you a bigger context to understand maybe the kind of problem you're facing is something that has been faced many times by many people, and there could be very general principles at work that can be of help to you. But most of us get caught up in our ordinary and particular circumstances, and we forget that there could sometimes be you know, other kinds of more universal guidance available. So at the contemplative phase, we try to work with you to put your problem in a context and give you some great ideas to help resolve it. And finally, if that works, and that could take one session, or it could take, at best, it could take you know, months, and sometimes it, it takes a longer time. But if it works, then you do regain equilibrium, and that's the E stage. Finally, you will be feel, you'll feel confident that you can actually do the right thing, and you'll be able to live with yourself and feel really good about what's happening. And this E stage is important because equilibrium is not permanent. We all struggle to maintain balance you know, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And the next time a scenario arises, that let's say is similar to the one you've just been through, you will have some takeaways. Philosophy offers time-honored principles and ideas that can be applied again and again. They're inexhaustible, and they don't have to be refilled like prescriptions. You know, once you have, once you understand an idea, you carry it with you for the rest of your life, and so any time you need it, it's there for you. So that's the equilibrium phase, mm -hmm. and that summarizes the peace process. Well, philosophical counseling, has this been a, a passion of yours, like really promoting this? Because from my perspective, I didn't know it was even available to, uh, I mean, you, you hear about psychology, you hear about the psychiatrist, and you can go to your priest, you can go to your doctor, but philosophical counseling just seems like it's a new, uh, it, it's a new avenue of uh, 
of talking through your your issues. Well, this is very ironic because, in in a way, that's absolutely true. It's new in its current incarnation. You could say that mm-hmm. the, the current generation of practitioners in the USA and worldwide. This is a movement that is that is all over the world now. Uh, and the current generation obviously is is new to people, and people are are, are approaching it, you know, at, from that basis, mm-hmm. and are really thrilled to discover yet another alternative. You've just mentioned a bunch of them, and sometimes psychology is the best thing. Sometimes psychiatry is necessary. You know, sometimes a religious faith it can is really good and can work for people. At other times, philosophy is the best thing. Again, it's up to the individual mm-hmm. to decide what is her best route, and sometimes you have to try these things to find out. But re- in reality. Philosophy is one of the oldest guides to life, and that's the, that's the really funny part, in a sense, ironically funny, because philosophy philosophers have been around for about at least 2,500 years now of philosophical, you know, recorded work, both from uh, Eastern and Western traditions, and some of the oldest wisdom traditions in human civilization, you know, all planet-wide, are actually philosophical. So it's really a very old thing. I joke that, you know, philosophy is the world's second oldest profession, but it really is. It's It's been, <laughs> you know, millennia since uh, philosophers have been around, and every generation has had philosophers who have tried to practice. It's not just theory, and some philosophers prefer, you know, to be in the ivory tower and are very good at it. Mm-hmm. Some, some, like like some, some priests or nuns, you know, are, are very good at being reclusive and, and leading a monastic existence, and they may be helping in a lot of ways doing that, too. They may, you know, they may exert influence in very positive directions, but they do it, you know, more or less removed from society. Well, it's also possible to practice these things, just like religion can be practiced publicly and, you know, privately with clients, well, in terms of pastoral counseling or other kinds of guidance, and just as psychology and medicine, so philosophy. But the real main point, uh, Shannon, the really important thing for Americans to realize, I mean, listeners to, to this show, is that billions of dollars have been spent promoting psychology, mostly since the Second World War, and there is really a very strong alliance between uh, psychiatry, psychology, and the pharmaceutical industry. Americans, on the whole, have been psychologized. There have been all these billions of dollars spent promoting psychology as a diagnostic tool and, you know, as a therapeutic tool. And sometimes it's great, but Americans tend, their first reaction now, because of these decades of conditioning with all this huge money behind it, Americans think, you know, the first time there's a problem, must be it must be psychological. Everyone is reflexively conditioned to believe that every possible problem in life, you know, is something that is psychological, and that's simply not true. Yeah, we're, we're reduced to syndromes and labels. Yes, we are. Everything becomes a syndrome or a disorder. Yes. And so it sounds scientific, right? Sounds very scientific. Let's say I tap my fingers a lot, and so I'm diagnosed with, you know, percussive digital syndrome. <laughs> you know, it just means I tap my fingers a lot. It sounds very scientific when you give it a name, and then people, and especially if someone has the credibility of a profession behind them, if they have a PhD and a license, you know, and a white coat, uh, it sounds very official. So, so of course, we're going to trust in them and say, okay, maybe I really do have this disorder. And then the next step is medication, and please understand that it's overdiagnosis and spurious medication, which is robbing too many people of their inner resources. Some people never mobilize their inner resources because if they buy into the diagnosis, then obviously they're going to buy into the cure, right? right. Which is a pill of some kind. Right. So we have Prozac, we have Paxil, we have you know we have every conceivable remedy for every conceivable problem in life. Only a lot of them don't work because not all these problems are pharmacological. Not everything is a you know not every problem in life is a uh, due to a chemical imbalance in the brain, as the little you know catechism goes. People have inner resources, will, desire. You know, there's so many ambition, volition, imagination, creativity. There are so many inner resources that can be mobilized so that people can actually heal themselves. 
And mm-hmm. that's where the real power lies. Well, I'm hearing women, uh, specifically women, because we're, they're over over um, achievers in many ways with their kids and their and having the perfect house and having everything with working and everything and and I hear them saying if I don't take a pill I can't get through the day if I don't take a pill I'm going to get divorced if I don't take a pill in my happy pill you know life is not going to function for me I don't have time to think about myself I don't have time to think about my problems um, this is this is kind of mainstream America and 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 that's that's sad, but we, even the doctors and, and my own experience, the doctors are saying, you got a problem here, you know, try this, the samples of this. And when you don't want that, but you're respecting your, your healthcare professional, you know, then how do you pull away from that authority that you've, you've, you've given your power to since you were a child? <laughs> well, it's a very, very searching question. Let, let me suggest some answers to you. First of all, what you say is, in my experience, perfectly true. It's very difficult to be a woman these days, I think, ironically, because of the successes of women's liberation and the empowerment of women and the general presence of women in you know, universities and professions in the workforce. Women, however, still want babies and still want marriages and still want to do all the things you know, that womanhood allows them to do. But on top of that, now they're you know, following careers and contributing enormously to the, to the economy. So that just puts a lot more stress. It's hard to do anything well, right? I mean, it's hard. you pick one thing and try and do it well, Definitely. and that can be, you know, a, a challenge for life. You try and juggle uh, motherhood, marriage, career. That's, uh, you know, putting enormous pressures on any on anybody. So then, of course, there will be moments of stress and anxiety and all kinds of, you know, sleep deprivation, maybe other kinds of things. So you go to a doctor, of course, you're going to get a, a, you know, some kind of diagnosis once again and the, and the pill. Well, a pill. The, po- the point is that medical professionals are also overworked now. They're, you know, I have friends in the, who are doctors and they've seen like 50, 60 people a day sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they have no time to talk to anybody. They have to do a paint-by-numbers diagnosis, right. right? Argue with the insurance companies over the phone. They spend sometimes more time arguing, you know, with insurance companies than they do seeing patients. They have to get some test authorized and whatnot, so they do that. And their time is very limited. They don't really have as much time as they used to have, if you remember the days of the family doctor mm-hmm. who knew everybody in the family and could actually give moral guidance because, you know, it was, it, was a, it was part of life in those days. Not anymore. Things are very impersonal, bureaucratic, technocratic. So people going to a doctor are not necessarily going to be able to have the time invested in them that they deserve. So one way to ameliorate this would be for the medical profession to forge partnerships with philosophers because we do specialize in dialoguing with people. Medical professionals have to specialize in tests and, you know, in diagnosis and in prescription where, you know, that's warranted, but they don't have enough time to talk. And insurance companies are getting tired also of paying for psychotherapy, which goes on forever. Right. And a lot, a lot of psychologists are opting out of the insurance game because they're spending more time doing paperwork also to satisfy the insurers than they are you know, with their own patients. So it's very interesting that the system, in a, in a way, is melting down. And philosophers can come on, we're not going to fix all the problems in the world, but what we are going to do is create space and time for people to express their deeper humanity, which the system is totally ignoring right now.